Thank you, Ruthann. Thank you, Anita. In light of the message of the song, as we think about the cross, where would we be without the cross of Christ? Without the resurrection? As we interact with a portion of Mark chapter 15, if you're observant of me when I speak, you will find that probably this morning I follow my notes maybe much more closely than normal. And there's a reason for that. I want to say certain things in certain ways and only certain things and only certain ways, and I don't want to you know, elaborate on some things. So that's why I might follow my notes a little more closely this morning than sometimes. How would you respond to the following? You work with four other individuals. Your boss makes a request for the five of you to fudge on some figures so that the department looks better. You tell your four co-workers that you cannot participate in fudging on some figures because that's just not who you are. They ask, why can't you fudge in figures? And you just make a brief statement that you have a relationship with God, you have a relationship with Christ, and... Because of that, you can't. Your four co-workers tell the boss that you will not fudge in the figures, and he calls you into the office, and he says you have a choice. You either fudge in the figures, or you're done. And the man says, I can't fudge in the figures, and walks out without a job. That has happened a number of times in our own area. Obedience in that case was costly, and we find the obedience of Christ in Matthew, or Mark rather, chapter 15 is costly, but he's being obedient to his Father. Let's read together Mark 15, beginning with verse 16, and keep in mind that Jesus was prepared to go to the cross. He spent three hours with his Father in Mark chapter 14. He then was taken before Pilate, and he responded responded correctly before Pilate. Peter disowns Jesus in the process. Now we see that Jesus is getting ready to be crucified and will be crucified. Mark chapter 15, beginning with verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, put on his own clothes, put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Gagatha, which is a place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, 
the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one in his right and one in his left. Those who passed by hurled their insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourselves, yourself. In the same way, the chief priest and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who crucified him also heaped insults on him. As we continue the discussion of the trial and crucifixion of Christ, please keep in mind his identity, his character, his being. He is the Son of God. And that was made clear to this point in Mark through statements, through Jesus' miracles, through his healing, and through what he taught. And as we read Mark and we discuss Mark, try to see it from the point of view of Jesus. He's being obedient to the Father. He's going to the cross. Try to see it from the point of view of the 11 who were told to prepare by watching in prayer, but they did not. They've forsaken Jesus and are aware, at least to some extent, of what is happening. Try to see it also from the point of view of the Roman believers who are in Rome who are undergoing persecution as they would be encouraged to realize that the one they're following is the Son of God. He suffered And they should expect to suffer. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus, in his final prediction of what is going to come, said, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. The final prediction of the passion of Christ is very specific in contrast to the first two predictions that he shared. In the first half of the prediction in Mark 10, we find this fulfilled in Mark 14 and 15. As in this case of the Sanhedrin's role in the handing over of Jesus, the second part of the prediction is even in greater detail the role of the Gentiles. Each detail, the handling, handing over in 1033, and then is fulfilled in 1515, is before, fulfilled before the trial of Pilate and the flogging of the Roman soldiers. Both Jewish leaders and Roman soldiers beat Jesus, 1465 and 1519. But in neither instance does the emphasis fall on the physical suffering. Rather, the emphasis falls in the derision and mockery of Jesus. Although with this difference, before the Sanhedrin, it was Jesus' divine status that was Lapoon, whereas before the Romans, it was his royal status and political profile that are ridiculed. Mark's bitter irony persists. The soldiers, despite their intention, acknowledge in both words and deed Jesus' true identity. Even in rebellion against God, humanity still bears witness to God. Verse 16 of Mark 15 says, The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace. 
And if you look at the other Gospels, you will find that it was a company of soldiers that led him away. A Roman legion contained 600 soldiers. A company was one-tenth of that, or 60. So we have 60 soldiers involved with Jesus, obeying orders, and they lead him into the Praetorium, referring to the place where the soldiers would have been housed. And then notice what takes place as they deal with the Son of God. They put a purple robe on him. Purple would be a sign of royalty, again done in mockery and derision. In reality, he was king of the Jews. That's his identity, his character, and his being. But he didn't display it in the action. They put a crown of thorns on his head. The thorns were probably an inch long, causing bleeding, and probably would have been pushed under his head. Again, the crown was done in mockery and derision. Lay aside the focus on mere physical pain and see the mockery and derision. He was king, but he's not displaying it. They call out to him, Hail, king of the Jews. Hail, king of the Jews. Hail, king of the Jews. You know, it's mere mockery and derision. Again, he is king of the Jews, yes but not grasped by the soldiers. Again, they strike him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Find a stick sometime, or a real strong yardstick, or get a cane, and start hitting someone with it, or let them hit you. They strike him with a staff. Strike him on the head. They spit on him, again, mockery and derision. And falling on their knees, they pay homage to him. Again, mockery and derision. Mockery, derision. He is the son of God. He is deity. He is who he claimed to be. But the father's will involved the cross. Involved the trial, involved the beating. The brutality of the soldiers replays the treatment endured at the hand, hands of the Sanhedrin in 1465. Savagery begets savagery. Blood in the ocean draws sharks. However, don't desensitize to the suffering of Jesus as he obeyed his father. All that he experienced was due to the love of his father and obedience of Jesus to his father. This was the father's will. This was the father's love. In Philippians 2, Paul says, Who being in very nature God, referring to Christ, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. In First Peter chapter 2, Peter says, 
When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Obedience was costly for Christ. Jesus entrusted himself to his Father. Knowing that the mockery, the derision, the physical pain were in his Father's plan and his Father's will. The same is true in modern day persecution, mockery and derision. It is the Father's will. The blows, the spitting, the mock prostrations are prelude to the more horrible crucifixion to follow. A Roman execution squad consisted of four soldiers and was overseen by a centurion who talks later in chapter 15, who was a commander of a hundred soldiers. Such a squad marches Jesus to the crucifixion. Bespattered with blood and ridicule, the figure of Jesus again recalls Isaiah's suffering servant. Isaiah 50 and verse 6, I offer my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I hid not my face from mocking and spitting. Then they led away, led him away to be crucified. With utter objectivity and with no trace of playing on the reader's emotions, Mark announces the crucifixion, the most cruel and horrifying punishment. In the words of Cicero, every totalitarian regime needs a terror apparatus, and crucifixion was Rome's terror apparatus for the infliction of pain and shame on the victim. Whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen where the most people can see and be moved by this fear, one writer says. Crucifixion was a punishment reserved for the non-Roman citizens in which excessive cruelty was unleashed on the lowest and the most defenseless class of society, slaves, violent criminals, and prisoners of war. At the defeat of the slave rebellion, In 71 B.C., Crassus had more than 6,000 slaves crucified. To enhance both the shame and the deterrent effect of crucifixion, victims were executed as public spectacles, and men were normally crucified naked, as the gambling for Jesus' clothes attest. Nor was crucifixion limited to men alone. Women, particularly slave women and women of the lower class, could also suffer the horrors of crucifixion. In the art and jewelry of the West, the cross has become a fixed symbol. But according to Josephus, during the siege of Jerusalem, the Romans crucified captives before the walls of Jerusalem in different postures, in different ways, according to their statistic thinking. Depending on the severity of the flogging beforehand, some victims would survive on the cross several days. Since no major arteries were severed, death came not by loss of blood, but by hypovolemic shock or exhaustion or heart failure or a combination of the above. 
Crucifixion was a ghastly form of death, excruciatingly painful, prolonged and socially degrading. The thought that the Messiah could suffer a cross of shame was so scandalous that 25 years later, Paul confessed that the preaching of a crucified Messiah was a stumbling block to the Jews in foolishness to the Gentiles. In the second century AD, the Gnostic Basinidus was so aghast at the idea of a crucified Messiah that he invented the notion that Simon of Cyrene and not Jesus had died on the cross. Mark, however, admits its reality, but without sensationalism or sentimentality. His purpose is to emphasize what the crucifixion of Jesus accomplished and how well it is summarized by Martin Hengel, and I quote, In the death of Jesus of Nazareth, God identified himself with the extreme of human wretchedness, which Jesus endured as a representation of us all in order to bring us to the freedom of the children of God. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, Will he not also, along with him, give us all things? End of quote. It's very obvious that crucifixions were coming. Many people had been crucified to this point in history. But as we come to the crucifixion of Christ, we find that we need to shift our focus from the suffering alone to Christ bearing the sin of the world to his costly obedience to the father his being innocent but yet crucified his separation from the father while on the cross that last one his separation from the father while on the cross have you ever observed a married couple been married maybe 70 or 80 years and one of them dies and the loneliness the heartache that comes because they've lived 80 years together. Can you imagine an eternity past where Jesus and God had intimate communication and relationship and that is now severed? Scripture was being fulfilled in the crucifixion. We won't look at these passages, but Psalm 22, Psalm 69 <clears throat> Isaiah 53, Deuteronomy 21, 23, about someone being cursed that is on a tree. Philippians 2 and verse 8, in terms of Christ being on the cross. And 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 23, that the cross is not something that is looked on with favor. Reconciliation to God involves the perfect, being sacrificed for sin. Here we have the life of Jesus as payment. No cross of Christ. No reconciliation. The love of God is being manifested, excuse me, so very deeply. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9, herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And what happened? He sent 
Christ. This love is intimately related to the holiness of God. God's holiness is intimately related to sin. His holiness demands payment for sin. Christ became that payment. As it relates to the crucifixion, Mark mentions in verse 21, a man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexandria and Rufus. He says, a certain man, the father of Alexandria and Rufus, was passing by that way from the country, and they forced him. The idea of force in the Greek is coercing, now being pressured like a slave or an animal would be put to work. A condemned man would normally carry his own cross, that is, the crossbar. In Jesus' case, he didn't. The text doesn't say why he did not carry it. But it's interesting that Simon's name is mentioned, and he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. If you read Romans chapter 16, you'll find there that a man by the name of Rufus is mentioned. Probably Mark mentioned this man because Simon was the father of these two men. And these two men probably were members of the Roman church. So they could identify with what took place in Jerusalem years earlier when they received Mark's gospel. We find that he is led out to Golgotha which means a place of the skull. And apparently, the Roman readers may not have been familiar with that. So he mentions Golgotha, and he says it means the place of the skull. And the site can be seen today overlooking an Arab bus station in Jerusalem. He's let out. He is offered mixed wine. <clears throat> I'm sorry, wine mixed with myrrh. Probably a narcotic to deaden the pain of crucifixion victims. But Jesus turned it down. They crucified him. And Mark just states that as a matter of fact. They crucified him. Would have stretched him out on the cross. Nails in his hands and his feet. And then they divide up their clothes, or his clothes, casting lots to see who would get his clothes. Jesus is viewed as a common criminal. He is treated like any other man being crucified. The text of Scripture states that it was the third hour when they crucified Jesus. The third hour would be 9 a.m. in the morning. The charge against him was simply the king of the Jews. They didn't recognize his love, but did his sovereignty. Remember, the Jews were under Roman rule. It's interesting that the Son of God, the one who performed miracles, the teacher of God is crucified with two robbers. No one seemed to recognize his identity, his character, his being. Stop and ponder what is revealed concerning Christ to this point in Mark's gospel. 
and the fact that he is crucified between two robbers. The response of various people make it obvious that they did not know who was crucified. They're crucifying a common man. As he is on the cross, those who pass by hurl their insults. It's interesting, the creatures are insulting the creator. Creatures who obviously did not know the facts or the true identity of Jesus, nor the reason for his death. Shaking their heads, and what do they say? So you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourselves. A reference to John chapter 2, 19 through 25, where Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. Referring to the temple of his body. But it was not understood in that light. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, what do they do? They mock him among themselves. They seem to think they have the last word. They had argued with Jesus many times in his three years of ministry, and each time he put them in their place. This time they have him on the cross. He only saw the present. Jesus was fulfilling God's will from eternity past and would rise in the future. Their mocking included, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of the Jews, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. One of the other gospel writers refers to the fact that he could have called angels, but he chose not to. Why? He was obedient to his father. The cross, the trial, the beating, and so on were all in the father's will. It's interesting that Jesus does not respond in any manner, nor does he defend himself. He knew his identity. He knew his father's will. He was obeying his father. He had already entrusted himself to his father. He knew he would rise from the dead to die no more. This knowledge, this intimacy with the Father and commitment to obedience made defense unnecessary. The taunt of Jesus to come down from the cross is essentially the same temptation that he faced in the garden. That is to avoid the cup of suffering. At Gethsemane, Jesus made the costly decision, which he now fulfills, to do the Father's will, rather than his own will. In this haunting picture of Jesus, fastened to a cross, assailed in mockery, we see proof of the amazing difference between God's way and everything which men consider their goal or conceive as being God's way. There is no self-defense from Jesus. No effort to get even or no final word. No attempt to preserve at least a picture of dignity and pride. Jesus surrenders in total vulnerability to the mockery and violence of the world. The cross. With all its shame 
It's mockery, it's derision, the trial with the Sanhedrin, with Pilate, is all part of the Father's will. He's obedient to the Father because he's becoming a sacrifice. He's becoming the substitute for the sins of the world. Donald Gray, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who died in 1960, was pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And one day the custodian came in with a card and said to Pastor Barnhouse, there's a visitor here to see you. He's the captain of the largest passenger vessel at this point in history. Holding the card, Pastor Barnhouse went to meet the man. And the man said, you have a beautiful church here. Dr. Barnhouse said, yes, beautiful church. It's a replica from Italy. In fact, we had people come from Italy many years ago. You know, those who went before me brought people from Italy to build this nice church building. And they talked a while longer, and the man of the, went on to say, I listen to your radio program when I come along the bank of Newfoundland. I heard your broadcast out of Boston. And I thought, I have 24 hours in New York. I'm going to get on the train and try to see if I can talk to Pastor Barnhouse. And Pastor Barnhouse said, I don't think you came to talk about buildings and so on. And the man said, no, I didn't come to talk about buildings. And Dr. Barnhouse put three crosses on a chalkboard that he had there. And the man was familiar with three crosses, two thieves, and Jesus. And Dr. Barnhouse said, the first man was in sin. He then said, the second man on the other side of Jesus was in sin. And he said, the third man, the one in the middle, he was not in sin. And Dr. Barnhouse said to the captain of this vessel, do you understand what I'm saying? He said, yeah, I think I understand. And Dr. Barnhouse went on and he said, on the one side was a criminal and sin was on him. And he said to the captain of the vessel, do you ever get stopped at a red light? He said, yeah. Do you ever get a ticket for it? If you got a ticket for it, then sin is on you. Dr. Barnhouse went on and said there was sin on the second man also. The other criminal. And then he said there was also sin on Jesus. Because he took the sins of the other two. He took the sin of the world on himself. And he said to the captain of the vessel, do you understand what I'm saying? He said, yes. He came to Christ and he went back to his vessel rejoicing because he understood what Christ had done. The cross has some applications. 
the possibility of mockery and derision is the norm for those who are disciples of Christ, mentioned in Philippians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3, 1 Peter 4. When we, I'm just saying believers, we in general are mocked and persecuted, Scripture is being fulfilled. We face very little persecution in our country. But in countries of the world, there's people today are being persecuted for their faith. The Roman believers were being persecuted for their faith. And as they read Mark, I'm sure they said, Christ suffered and were called to suffer in the same way. The mockery, derision, crucifixion of Jesus was due to the love of his father and his obedience. I don't know about you, but do you grasp that? That the trial before the Sanhedrin, before Pilate, the crucifixion, the cross, was all coming from the Father's love and the Father's will. In our commi- is our commitment to Christ deep enough Costly, for costly obedience without defending yourself, but entrusting yourself to God. Discipleship is not merely, and there's a word missing there, is not merely escaping hell and going to heaven, but a radical faith in the person, the identity, the character, the being of Jesus Christ, a faith that will experience death before denying Jesus. Because you're related to the Son of God. Jane Killian gave this to me after last Sunday. She said it ties in with your sermon. My battles are won. To be prepared for what comes my way, I need to surrender to your will each day. I find the crucif- <clears throat> or the confidence, grace, and readiness too, if I but surrender Lord, to you. I must be prepared, not demand. Simply surrender to your mighty hand. Remembering you're much bigger than any trial I may face. For my battles were won when you took my place. Two simple questions. First of all, have you come to Christ? In faith. Can you say God is my father? I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you've never come to faith in Christ. Why not now? You're sitting there God. I see what Christ did. I understand my sin. I want to come to faith. In Christ. My second question If you come to faith in Christ, are you surrendered to him? Let's pray together. Father, I find a sermon like I presented this morning much, much harder to speak to share than I would have 
20 or 30 or 40 years ago. It's not that anything has changed in terms of what your word says or what Christ has done. I guess what has changed, Father, is that I see the depth of my sin much, much more. I see the depth of your love. I see the depth of Christ's willingness to be surrendered and what that cost him. Father, may we as a body, through your spirit at work in us, grasp in a growing way the depth of your grace displayed in Christ, the depth of your love manifested in the cross, the riches of your inheritance of us as your saints. But that goes back again to the cross. As Paul said towards the end of his life, that he was the chief of sinners. And as you read about the life of Paul, it seems like he grew in understanding the depth of his sin. But at the same time, he grew in an understanding of the riches of your grace, the riches of what Christ has done, that it's the cross, it's Christ alone. May we grow in understanding the depth of our sin, but also a deep appreciation of the cross, of Christ, of his saying, it is finished. And Father, in several weeks as we look at Christ's death and what he finished, may we again be challenged just to love you, to be yielded to you as men and women, as husbands and wives, as fathers, as mothers, as teenagers, as children, as students, as workers, as citizens, and so on, to live well with Christ as our life each day. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.